The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, books are a powerful tool, and war is an all-out endeavor. It's no surprise that war has drafted books into its army. But exactly how has it done so? And what has that meant for conflict? And what has conflict meant for books? We explore this with literary historian Andrew Pedigree today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. I hope you're... I'm Jack Wilson, by the way, still here doing my best, and I hope you're all doing well, too. I'm glad you're on board for this one. Let's give Emily Dickinson the day off and go straight to our topic. We have a literary historian here, and his topic is war. We've explored this a few times here at the History of Literature podcast, but his immersion is deep asking questions we haven't always thought to ask. There's a central dichotomy here. We tend to think of books as marvelous, as humanity at its finest, while war is humanity at its most desperate and devastating low. Books are not just the creme de la creme, are they? They can be used as propaganda and how-to guides for evil means, and they can be burned and bombed. What happened in the 20th century, that war-torn era? What happened to books in particular? Andrew Pedigree will join us to discuss all that in a minute. And then let's round things out with something more tranquil. A My Last Book by, well, maybe it's not going to be so tranquil. Robin Lane Fox, who was here to discuss Homer and his Iliad, a pretty famous book about war. Actually, we'll see if Robin chooses that as the last book he will ever read, or if he selects something else. All that's coming up after this. Okay, joining me now is Andrew Pedigree, a professor of modern history at the University of St. Andrews, a leading expert on the history of book and media transformations. He has previously written several award-winning books, including The Library, A Fragile History. He's here today to discuss his new book, The Book at War, How Reading Shaped Conflict and Conflict-Shaped Reading. Andrew Pedigree, welcome to the History of Literature. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. So let's start right with the title. What do you mean by The Book at War? Which books and which wars? Well, I think it's fair to say that as long as people have been able to write, they have written about warfare, and we can trace the first known book on the art of war back to 6th century BC China. Mm. Uh, but there's no doubt, there's no doubt that it took a, a complete shift in terms of um, scope and a number of books about warfare with the invention of printing. Mm. You can count over 3,000 books on warfare, military handbooks, drill books, and so on, published in print before 1700. As for which wars, we try and do the whole history of the relationship between books and war going back to earliest times. But there's no doubting that the focus of the book is very largely on the 19th and 20th century. Mm -hmm. And that's because literacy in those centuries was enough to have a critical mass of readers 
who were able to take part in conversations and needed to be influenced. Mm, right. And speaking of reading, the subtitle, How Reading Shaped Conflict and Conflict Shaped Reading, suggests, to me at least, a kind of broad definition of books. Do you consider pamphlets, for example, and other uh, forms of material, magazines and, and periodicals? Absolutely. For me, for the purpose of this book, uh, we're talking about print, mm-hmm. uh, anything in print, even to the extent of people dropping leaflets on their uh, opponents from from planes, and then in the Second World War, firing them in shell cases across to the other trenches to encourage them to defect or surrender. Mm -hmm. So yes, any form of print, because all forms of print are uh, mobilized for the war effort. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to take a look at this topic? Well, a few years ago now, I was going to the Imperial War Museum to see a very good exhibition on how art was protected during the Second World War, mostly the collection of the National Gallery, but also the Imperial War Museum's very impressive collection of pictures. And while I was there, I thought, well, so much about art. What about books? Uh, Because libraries need protection as well. So it really started with an attempt to look at how book collections, public libraries fared in wartime. But then I realized there was more to it than that. It's easy to think of books as sort of sacred objects, uh, always a force for good in society. Mm. Actually, that's not always the case. And I found there was a big story to be told about the way in which warfare totally reshapes the publishing industry and what authors write. At the same time, everybody involved in those wars have have use for books, not just because the government is turning out propaganda, but because books to many people provide a safe haven in difficult times, and no times are more difficult than times of war. Mm, Right. Okay, so I feel like this topic is so broad that my head is going to start spinning as I try to think of all the different ways that books have been used or could be used, but you've very helpfully broken these down into some categories in the table of contents. So why don't we kind of follow that so I can keep things on track here. And let's start with the first one, how books have been used to build the fighting nation. Yes, well, that's really important, I think, from the mid-19th century onwards, not least the American Civil War, because Mm, these are the first times that wars are being fought by troops who uh, have a high level of literacy, who are regarded as active uh, citizens, and have opinions about the war they're fighting Mm -hmm. and why they're doing it. And particularly when we get to the beginning of the First World War, where people signed up as volunteers in huge numbers, and you have to ask what made them do it. Obviously, the United States was out of the war until 1917, but in 1914, there was a huge enthusiasm uh, for this war on all sides. And looking back at what a disastrously uh, violent and uh, and fatal uh, confrontation this was. It's hard to see why. So we have to look at things uh, at the things that these people were reading, and uh, very often they were books which were 
posing all sorts of elaborate uh, fictional situations where uh, your country was invaded by one of the other competitors. This is an age of colonial competition between mm. the great European powers. But also it was things like, in Britain, the Boys' Own Paper, a hugely popular weekly which was read by boys from all social classes and adolescents and young adults and presented the picture of the sort of heroic British boy traveling the world, dealing with all sorts of people who he was able to put down. And these were, this vision of sort of, we can call it muscular Christianity, mm. was essentially influential. And because you, you have to remember that in this day, the young were very much conformists. They wanted to prosper in their own society. They didn't have much wish to change it. So I would say that there's no no propaganda more effective than books that aren't overtly propagandistic. Mm. And this is particularly true of these boys' magazines. Right. Well, that's so interesting because when you we talked about America and the Civil War, I, I immediately thought of Uncle Tom's Cabin and the, the mm-hmm. famous uh, story. I, I've heard that it might not have happened quite this way, but of the president saying to the author, so this is the little lady who started this great war. Um, and, you know, kind of persuading hearts and minds or Thomas Paine yeah. is, is another one, the, the example of a pamphlet, Common Sense, that kind of helped uh, inspire the revolutionary, uh, you know, soldiers to take up arms and so on. But but you you almost seem to also be describing a kind of conditioning just to generally be ready for war or to, to encourage militarism or or yeah. the idea of being a soldier. And that seems kind of more pernicious to me. Is there Are there a lot of examples of this that you found? Yes, I think that's true, particularly in, in places like France and England, which had uh, aspired to be world powers, but were not intrinsically militaristic. Britain in those, in those days was a naval power, but it wasn't particularly uh, a military power. So to get people to sign up. They had to be persuaded that it was their patriotic duty. Mm. Uh, Uncle Tom is an incredibly interesting text because you're quite right to say that there is this great legend about Uncle Tom's cabin. But in fact, it seems to be that if you look at the surveys that were taken of volunteers for the Union armies, they don't say they are fighting to abolish slavery. They say much more things like they're fighting to preserve the union. Mm. They're fighting because the results of elections have to be respected. They're fighting for sentiments of fair play. I think Uncle Tom is important, but probably more on the southern side of confirming a sense that the northern states would always have it in for them Mm. and they had no long-term future in such a union. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So once we have this idea, we're ready to go to war, we need knowledge. And books here seem like they could be particularly important in terms of, I guess, science, warfare, maps, and so on. So what did you turn to when you started looking at the way knowledge would help and and books would be essential in help preparing a nation for war? 
Yes, it was it was easiest of those three to write about maps because, of course, we have very good collections of maps. Mm-hmm. I think maps changed their status because up until the 19th century, we can't really talk of frontiers carefully delineated because there wasn't the surveying capacity to do that. So borders were more border zones. But then when we get precise cartography, countries can establish borders between their nations. And uh, it's pretty easy for Britain and to an extent the United States to establish where those borders are, much less so in the continent of Europe. And of course, borders become an extremely toxic issue as the frontiers flow back and forth across the continent, depending on who is winning. It was much harder, actually, to establish the role of books in scientific inquiry, because this is really, from the point of science, it's really periodicals, which are much more important Mm. than books. Mm -hmm. And we have this tradition in 20th century science that science knows no borders. The process of scientific inquiry goes on exponentially by cooperation between scientists in different countries. Mm. And this is the natural um, attitude of a scientist. So when these two, when countries start fighting each other, you have to reverse those polarities. Suddenly you're trying to keep your scientific knowledge away from those of the enemy nations and try somehow to get the periodicals, which the enemy nations are no longer sending you, to find out what they're up to. So it's really a periodical war as far as scientists are concerned. Right. As far as intelligence is concerned, books, again, become important. But then so do newspapers. So do Mm. telephone directories. You can learn a lot about how your opponent is doing if you can get hold of their newspapers and read the memorials to dead officers in them. So probably, although spying is the more romantic, something like 90% of intelligence in war comes from open sources, Mm. uh, i.e. published printed material. Right. And in terms of uh, books that would contain information about technology or periodicals, that would contain scientific knowledge and so on. So, you know, it's easy to see when there, say, a war breaks out between two countries, immediately the government of one nation will start looking at, well, what are our exports and, you know, munitions, and we're going to cut off the weapons that are leaving our shores and going to this other country and so on. What has been their relationship with the publishing industry? Have they generally been able to control the publishers to say, no, you're not going to be shipping these things uh, abroad because our enemies might be able to benefit from that science or that research that's in here? Or has that been harder for them to shut that down? Well, for the combatant nations, it's been very easy. You simply uh, ban the exports of anything, really, Mm -hmm. to the countries you're fighting against. The more problematic business is neutral countries Mm. in let's say in the second world war like switzerland which became an extraordinarily 
market for, let's say, German materials which the Allies want to get their hands on and vice versa. So mm. that needs a more careful control. The Americans passed, uh, the U.S. passed a, a statute which essentially cancelled the copyrights of anyone in um, an adversarial country. So, for instance, any German copyrights were now free game, which enabled the government to make copies of key periodicals, which might be found, let's say, in only two American universities, and then microfilm them and send them around to all the other uh, university science departments, which were now almost exclusively working for the war effort. Mm. And indeed, you know, the, the present supremacy of American universities in terms of resources and their uh, reputation really dates from the Second World War. If you look at the first Nobel Prizes, you see that Germany is way ahead in the first 20 years in terms of winning. And it's really only with the Second World War that American science comes to the uh, hegemonic mm. uh, role that it now has in scientific discovery. Right. American science with a lot of German emigre help. <laughs> Yes, uh, absolutely. And this is one of the many self-harming aspects of Nazi government, mm. that they were warned that if they particularly were to expel a Jewish scientists, they would put back mathematics, physics, chemistry very significantly. And Hitler said he didn't care. And right. so it may well be that had he not taken that decision, that uh, they would have uh, found the secret of the atom bomb mm. before the Western powers. And this was a sort of great anxiety, I have to say, to the West throughout the war. Yeah. Until someone looked at an open source periodical of the type I've been describing and saw that all the major physicists who should have been, if they were, uh, were working on, on the atom bomb were actually giving their normal lectures in their normal universities. And it was at that moment that people knew that Germany had given up mm. trying to develop a bomb. But the reputation of German science was so high that Germans rather assumed that if they couldn't crack this, uh, nobody else could. So they were really totally unaware of the progress being, being made by the American Manhattan Project. Mm. Okay, so let's turn to what we see uh, happening during the war, for example, among the soldiers or for the folks at home who were trying to support the boys who were out there in the trenches. Yeah, well, that, that was that's really the heart of the book, those sort of six middle chapters when I deal with what publishers contribute to the war, what authors contribute to the war. And then the recipients on the home front, soldiers and, and prisoners of war, we mustn't affect them because they're the ultimate captive audience as far as reading is concerned. Mm -hmm. This was actually how I spent my COVID. I, uh, during the lockdowns uh, in the UK, I read through a whole lot of diaries uh, left by uh, people uh, of their experience of the war and um, just to see what they were reading and what they had to say about reading. And what you find is that 
people are extremely interested in contemporary events. So the fall of France, for instance, stimulates a huge interest in you know, why it happened. Mm. The uh, Russian-Finnish war produces a wave of books about Finland and so on and so forth. But you also find that many people who read intensively before the war read very little during the war. Why do why do 40% of people read next to nothing or, or much less than they would normally do? And the answer seems to be that their lives have changed so much. Mm. We've, And this is particularly so of women who are called into work in war factories or they lose their domestic servants so they find themselves queuing for food or doing the cleaning or doing the cooking, things that otherwise would have been time to to, to, to read, or they're doing endless voluntary work, because this was total war, and that meant that everybody had to do their bit. And one of the most tangible ways they could do this was by collecting and providing books for the soldiers. Mm. And this becomes uh, an obsession, I would say, in both Britain and in Germany and in the United States. And one of the first things that happens when they join the war in uh, 1917, the First World War, is there's this huge book drive to send for the troops. The only problem is that a lot of the material that is donated is really the scourings of the back of the cupboard, which people are very happy to get rid of and really totally unsuited for reading by soldiers. You tend to have folk who are middle-class households giving the book to uh, citizen soldiers who have much less education and come from different backgrounds. So it's not terribly effective in the First World War, but it does show that librarians are fully involved in the whole process. In the Second World War, you're in a far better position because in the meantime, you've had the birth of the paperback. And that really transformed the reading of those in the services because they can buy for themselves penguin books, mm. pocket books for six pence over here, five cents in the States. And then in addition to that, you get a lot of bespoke publishing for the military. Most notably, are these wonderful American service editions, which are specifically designed as small books uh, which will fit into the large pocket of your battle dress. And the American services distributed something like 1,300 titles, mostly fiction, and an amazing total of 120 million copies. And these were given away free to soldiers, and they kept them coming and managed to supply them to the forces fighting throughout the Pacific Islands, everywhere that American soldiers went, these American service editions followed them. Is there, what's been the approach taken by uh, governments in particular when they're selecting books to be given to the soldiers? I could imagine that they would want to, you know, keep up morale and and uh, would probably not want specifically anti-war books, for example. But on the other hand, the soldiers are probably demanding things that are are not just go-team kind of stuff, too. So do they just avoid the subject of war altogether, or do they 
Do they try to find books that feel real and will be accepted by the troops, uh, but yet not turn them against their, the battle that they're about to fight? Well, I would say in the American case, they know they're trying to provide uh, recreational material. Mm-hmm. And so overwhelmingly, these 1300 books are novels of one sort or another. And there is a general sense that when you're trying to support, support your brave boys on the front line, that uh, the normal sort of limits on what is permissible are rather sort of let go. And so some of the, the books are quite racy. Mm. And they are truly popular literature. But at the same time, the series is is well seeded with classics. So you get very popular contemporary authors like C.S. Forrester's Hornblower books. At the same time, as you do have quite a lot of poetry and quite a lot of classics, because warfare involves long periods of boredom, both for people left behind and people in the front line. And this is the opportunity often for some serious reading. One guy who was stuck on a Pacific Island, which was never in the front line, but nevertheless had to be garrisoned, read this, the whole of Homer in, in the time he was sitting there. Mm. I think he actually translated it from the original. So there were all sorts of things that went on in those times, which left plenty of room for reading. But the American authorities realized that many of their troops didn't necessarily want to read uh, classics of European or American literature. So there were plenty of magazines um, sent out, including, for instance, Time, in a sort of special miniaturized version without all the advertisements, which was much more easily transported. But several dozen magazines were supplied to the troops in this way. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more from Andrew Pedigree. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat Cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. So, Andrew, have books and libraries been targeted by the enemy? I'm thinking of the Blitz, for example, and, you know, is, are they considered to be a, a high-value target? Can, can we measure the effects of that strategy? 
I think right up until the 21st century, you would say that libraries are going to be more collateral damage Mm. than specific targets. Mm -hmm. It's in the nature of things that uh, public libraries, particularly the main branch, are going to be in the town centre, along with other civic buildings. And so in an age of very inaccurate bombing, and carpet bombing, it's almost inevitable that libraries will suffer as well. Mm-hmm. So libraries did have protocols for spiriting their books away to places of safety. And this particularly applied to very old books from the first era of print. But you couldn't close libraries without damaging morale quite significantly. Mm. And whereas when libraries were hit, it was inevitably a very tragic occurrence. A lot was lost. Mostly the libraries, the books which were left behind would have been very easily replaceable because there were books by and large that were in many private hands as well. So it wasn't an irreparable damage as it would be, for instance, with artwork, Mm, which mm -hmm. are all individually unique. One thing I would say, though, is that libraries were fully involved in the war effort. These were places where people would go to pick up technical literature of some sort or another. The major libraries were fully involved with intelligence work, providing rare books or indeed uh, their map collection. People went there to get the numerous special regulations that you had to follow if you're a shopkeeper or just a householder. So libraries were, in that respect, you know, fighting the war themselves. Right. So the fact that they were damaged was, in some respects, not illegitimate. Mm. And then... What kinds of uses are they put to after the war is over? I think after the war is over is when the critical literature tends to uh, arrive. Mm -hmm. We all know the war poets, uh, and not least in Britain because they're much studied in school with their sense of the pity of war, the wastefulness of war. But actually the poetry written uh, during the war, particularly at the beginning of the First and Second World War, tended to be much more jingoistic, much more in favor of the war. And certainly uh, the writing uh, authors adapted their work so as to make no criticisms of war. So it's only after the war, in the case of the First World War, about uh, 1929, a, a full decade later, when people start to reflect, and that's when you get the much more critical literature That's not quite the case after the Second World War, because the Cold War begins so fast after the end of the war. Already by 1945-46, the relationship with Russia is very difficult, and it's pretty clear that this is going to be the, the new great powers. The United States and Russia are going to be the antagonists for the next 40 years. So there's plenty of use of books in the Cold War period. Some a little bit comic, as when there is an attempt to fly Bibles over the the Iron Curtain into uh, Germany and Czechoslovakia attached to balloons. And that doesn't 
actually seem to have done much. It just littered the Czech countryside with uh, Bibles. So that didn't work. But what I think you could say is that where the Russians very much won the intelligence war in the early Cold War, we could be said to have won the fictional spy war, if you like, mm. mm-hmm. because the works of Graham Greene, John Le Carre, and particularly Ian Fleming, mm-hmm. James Bond books, had an enormous impact behind the Iron Curtain and uh, caused some trepidation when they were put into the hands of the general public, which uh, the Russian state didn't really want to see happen. How about books and the effect that they have on helping people to heal, and uh, whether it's the soldiers or the the society, and, and in particular in a for a country that's lost a war, uh, mm-hmm. what what kinds of things do we see coming from books in that respect? Well, what we see in the defeated nations of the Second World War is they are so defeated that their publishing industry, the German publishing industry, is not in good shape. So to some extent, this is the opportunity which is taken by the the British and Americans particularly to feed into these cultures all sorts of classic literature of our literary heritage, which was, in fact, very willingly received. It's interesting in this respect, I think, to look at the literature of Vietnam. And certainly, uh, rather like I've said about the First World War, you see the most significant literature in this respect taking off after the war is over. And that is a literature reflection of sort of how did we get ourselves in this state sort Mm -hmm. of literature, Mm -hmm. rather than particularly healing in the sense of trying to make sense of it. Right. And, okay, so we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'd like to hear some more examples. And that's the point you made about we generally think of books as being forces for good, but there are instances where they haven't been. So what Mm -hmm. kinds of of books are you singling out for, I guess we could say, criticism or, or for observing that these are books that maybe have caused a lot of destruction or have prolonged war or what? What are we talking about here? Well, I think a lot of people would now uh, throw the search very wide. And we've talked about the uh, 19th century literature of uh, colonial supremacy Mm. already. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most obvious examples are things like Hitler's Mein Kampf, Mm -hmm. which has a very interesting history. In its first publication, it's a dud. It fails completely. And but for the fact that the publisher was a a strong supporter of Hitler, I doubt the second part, which is one which has a lot of the uh, racial language, I doubt the second part would ever have been a proposition for a publisher unless they were really helping out. And it only really begins to take off when Hitler comes to power. But by the end of the war, there's something like plus of 9 million copies in circulation. And it's essentially a compulsory possession for just about everybody who has a house or a flat or it's given as a present when people get married. So enormously owned, but of course you don't know how influential that. It's an incredibly difficult 
read even in the original German. Mm. Stalin is probably the most intellectual of the world leaders, and he writes a very great deal, including core texts of the new Soviet state. It's one of those wars, the Second World War, where, where virtually everybody who is a significant leader are themselves an author. Mm. Charles de Gaulle wrote, uh, wrote an important book on tank warfare. Churchill actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature right. in, in the 1950s. So he was, a, he, he was someone who had written uh, all his adult life. So if we're looking for bad books, the focus is most obviously on Nazi Germany, which when the Nazis came to power in 1933, they demanded of librarians that they take out all the books of which they disapproved and replace them with Nazi literature a lot of which was very dreary. And at the end of the war, it turned out that many of these librarians had simply taken the forbidden stuff off to the basement. <laughs> so they had it ready to go back on the shelves by the time the Allies turned up uh, to ask them to take their Nazi literature out of the collection. Mm. We like to think that book banning and, and censorship would always backfire and that it, it would never be effective because the truth will come out and, and so on. But are there instances where nations or leaders have successfully used the power of the press or the power to suppress in order to whip their people into a, a, a state of, of, I guess, brainwashed readiness for war? Well, all nations engaged in war apply censorship, mm -hmm. um, and they apply it to all forms of communication, uh, whether it's radio, which was important in the Second World War, the newspapers, mostly in that case to prevent militarily sensitive information uh, being shared too widely, like the position of particular troop detachments, but also sometimes to prevent the reporting of particularly sensitive disasters, uh, and that on the Allied side as well as on the German. But in fact, censorship isn't really hugely necessary and hugely different, actually, between the democracies and the dictatorships, mm. because the most effective form of censorship during the war is paper shortage. Paper is much harder to get your hands on, less of a problem for the United States. But in Europe, where paper was imported and submarine warfare was making it incredibly difficult to import anything, and you had to import food as well, the amount of paper went down very rapidly. So all publishers had to keep to war standards in terms of what they produced. And they also had much less paper to do it with. So editions got very small. But for publishers, it wasn't a tremendously bad deal because everything, because so many fewer books were being published, everything that they published sold well. And so they actually made quite a lot of profit from wartime publishing. And you have to bear in mind that most publishers in this era are themselves committed to the national cause. Mm. In Germany, as the war rolled on, a lot of publishers published exclusively for the military, uh, either for the Luftwaffe or for the Wehrmacht or for the Navy, because they have their own 
paper allocation, which was quite generous. And so we're able to give the publishers uh, a pretty good flow of paper. So yes, there's censorship. Yes, there are difficulties occasionally when things are said which might reveal something to the enemy. But on the whole, in these wars, the solidarity in the fighting peoples is so universal that um, it's not as if publishers are prevented from publishing a lot of adversarial literature. And in fact, the degree to which criticism is, is permitted during the war is sometimes quite surprising. Mm. So now that we're in a, a digital age, uh, I would imagine that the things like the, the paper shortage or the ability to transport books or to issue books to soldiers and things like that would change quite a bit. But I'm wondering if also you've seen differences in reading and just the, the importance of text to people. I, I would imagine that we've kind of moved into a, a realm where videos and, and audio and, and that kind of thing would be as important, if not more important, than getting the right text in, in the right pair of hands so that it can influence someone's mind. Is that something a little bit outside of the scope of what you've looked at, or do you have any thoughts on where we're headed from here? Well, I, I, it's something which interests me a lot, so I have addressed it a little. There was, for instance, uh, during the Afghan and Iraq wars, there was some attempt to revive the American service editions, but it just wasn't really necessary. Mm. With cheap paperbacks and good supplies, um, people could get hold of the recreational reading that they wanted. I think it's a great mistake in the history of communication to assume that because you have a new communication medium, whether it's television or the iPhone or the internet, that this necessarily supersedes what goes before. Hmm. What tends to happen is that humans are quite smart and we simply take what we like of the new medium while continuing to use all the other media that we always did. You know, we may read a paper or we may read a paper online. But what I can tell you is that um, when this book is published, judging by my previous books, something like 95% of all sales will still be of print mm. rather than the audio book or the iReader. I um, because there's something tangible about books that is very comf comforting. Mm -hmm. And uh, we still don't quite know how online reading um, really matches up against print reading in terms of retention and uh, in terms of enjoyability. Mm -hmm. So I'm quite optimistic about the future of the book. I mean, it's a great invention. And survived all sorts of different changes and technological challenges for 500 years. And I don't really see that changing. Mm. Okay. Well, the book is called The Book at War How Reading Shaped Conflict and Conflict Shaped Reading. Andrew Pedigree, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's been my pleasure.
And finally today, we welcome again Robin Lane Fox, who's been reading and writing about and teaching Homer for more than 50 years. After we spoke to him about the great bard of ancient Greece and his epic poem, The Iliad, I asked Robin this special question. Okay, we're joined now by Robin Lane Fox, the author of Homer and His Iliad. Robin, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. I am going to describe one that I don't know if it was ever written, and it's never been found. Hmm. Um, The book I would like to read is... Uh, my Brother Jesus, colon, The Truth, ah. by James, the brother of the Lord. <laughs> um, and what a fascinating thing. There is James, who clearly didn't believe in Jesus' divine mission on earth, knew all the secrets, knew it wasn't a virgin birth, knew whatever it was, and would have told us. And yet, he had uh, um, an appearance, we're told, of his brother after his death, which completely changed his mind. So that is, that's the, the non-existent book I'd like to read. And then at the, you know, the final existing book, it would have to be War and Peace. It, for me, is absolutely the tops. And I love all the philosophizing as well. Um, and it's inexhaustible. When I wrote on Homer, I reread Homer and thought, oh dear, maybe it won't seem quite so wonderful. It seems even more wonderful. So uh, I feel the same would be true rereading, um, I know it would, Tolstoy's masterpiece. Right. We touched on Tolstoy a little bit when we talked about the Iliad. And one thing I didn't mention, I had always heard that Tolstoy learned Greek, I think, in his 60s, so he could read Homer in the original. Is, do you know if that story is true? Absolutely. Uh, completely correct. Of course he did. I think he was younger. I may be wrong. I've got a feeling uh, that he was in his 40s. Oh, okay. Anyway, he's a shining example to us all. Um, and um, my advice to everybody is, if anything touches you, or even as it has done one or two readers, actually in my book makes you cry, get on with it. You won't have lived in vain. Just go and learn ancient Greek and read the poem through. Mm. It's a life changer. Okay. Robin Lane Fox, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much. Hugely enjoyable. Hugely enjoyable. Well, I can say the same for our guests today. My thanks to both Andrew Pedigree and Robin Lane Fox for joining me. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My, my, my. Such smart people I have to talk to. I am truly the luckiest podcast host in the world in certain respects. (laughs) Good guests being one of them and good listeners too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.